Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. So welcome to our podcast, Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So I'm a fan of sports, especially team sports, and in particular basketball. Having played through college and after until my left knee decided we had had enough and yoga became something my knee and I could agree on. I always found that people revealed themselves on the court. Cheaters cheated, complainers called unnecessary fouls, and good sports are that way in life. The game itself is beautiful in motion. That crazy Tim Hardaway crossover, Magic's no-look passing, Bernard King's you know I'm shooting my jumper right here and you still can't stop it attitude. And how could you not love Julius and his uneven fro as he did things with a red, white, and blue basketball that made you go, ooh. My guest today was one of those spectacular players, Earl the Pearl Monroe. A few nicknames were applied to try to capture his essence, but the pearl stuck. Earl magically had the basketball on a string. His legendary spin, left defenders with twisted ankles and where did he go expressions. He is an NBA Hall of Famer, a member of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. The Baltimore Bullets selected Earl with their second pick in the 67 draft and he delivered immediately, averaging 24 points a game that season and was Rookie of the Year. He's a four-time NBA All-Star and member of the 1973 New York Knicks championship team. And that's the last time Knicks won a championship, I'm sad to say, as a New Yorker. Earl led his Winston-Salem State University Rams to the NCAA College Championship while leading the nation with a 41.7 point average per game. That means somebody might have come up to him after a game and said, yo, Earl, you only had 30 tonight, man. Are you a little off tonight? You all right? So Winston-Salem also became the first HBCU to win a national title. Earl was voted College Division Player of the Year and Sporting News First Team All-American. He was the only College Division player to achieve such an honor. And Earl has not stopped since his NBA days. He has spent more than 30 years in the entertainment business, from producing off-Broadway musicals to running his own record and publishing company. And he was also a one-time restaurant owner. And we'll chat about that in a minute. Most recently, a front page New York Times article covered Earl's latest endeavor, the Earl Monroe New Renaissance Basketball School located in the South Bronx in New York, with a curriculum devoted to every aspect of basketball's vast and growing ecosystem. Born and raised in South Philly and a current resident of Harlem in New York City, I am so pleased to welcome Earl the Pearl Monroe to Corner Table Talk. Earl, welcome. Thank you, Brad. Long intro, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been around for a minute. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, and, and thank you to Marita for uh, for helping us helping me out, hooking me up, reconnecting me with you. So I appreciate that, Marita. Right. Earl, we kick things off with what I call short order questions. So let's jump into those. Tell me what's in heavy rotation on your playlist. What are you listening to these days, man? I'm not listening to radio too much anymore. You know, serious, you know, FM has gotten you. So it's it's all the old songs that, it, uh, you know, we kind of grew up with. And, uh, and then some of the stuff on watercolor. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, in between both of those things. And uh, nothing special, but uh, I guess if anything, you know, the 
and uh, the intruders, I'll always love my mama is, is <laughs> right on the top of my list of anyway. <laughs> great song, great song. Miles Davis make it in there ever for you these days? Oh yeah, Miles does, you know, but you know, I, I like singing. I mean, you know, yeah. I, like, I like the jazz thing, but I also like to hear somebody sing some lyrics and whatnot. Yeah, me too, man. I'm with you on that. Earl, what's your morning routine? Well, I get up early, um, about 6.45. Uh, I get my grandson ready to go to school. He's nine years old. Uh, dress him and he eats and so forth and, gets, and get him out to school at, at before eight. And um, the next uh, part of my day is either if I have to go out somewhere, I'll go out early morning, nine o'clock or so, and, and do whatever I have to do. Otherwise, I'm looking at TV, <laughs> you know, Supernatural, uh, Charmed, and all those shows, uh, you know, until about one or two o'clock. And he gets picked up at 3.30 again. And, uh, you know, very simple life. I mean, you know, uh, I try not to do, you know, you know, too many things. I try to keep things simplified. But, um, you know, of course, with the school that you were just alluding to, that's gotten me out you know, a lot more and uh, doing a lot of fundraising for that school as well. And I'm uh, very proud of the fact that, um, you know, it's, it's a school that's in my name. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And, I, and I, can, I can tell from the lack of lines in your face that there's not much stress in Earl Monroe's <laughs> days. Well, you, you, you look as young as I remember you to look. Earl, what's, what is your preferred footwear of choice? What, what's on your feet these days when you're moving around? Well, generally sneakers. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got all kinds of sneakers. I'm trying to get back into wearing shoes again. You know, since the pandemic's been, you know, here, really haven't been able to, you know, dress up or anything like that. Uh, everything's kind of leisure. And uh, so, you know, I'm a sneaker guy. Um, I just I just got something yesterday. I had to sit back. I have strange feet. I have to buy two of the same. Sometimes I'll buy a wide. I'll buy a wide and a medium, in in whatever size it is, and then I try it out and I send the other one back. So that you know, that's the everything is um, you know online. Yeah, I know, man. I love that. And it's funny, man, my feet have expanded. I went from a 12 to a 13. I don't know how that happened, but my feet gained weight, I guess. Well, your body, your body, you know, goes down and it has to spread out somewhere. So it spreads out your feet. Yeah. And some other places, too. But uh, that's that's another show. So um, tell me, Earl, best live musical performance you've ever seen. Best live musical performance. Um, probably. Michael Jackson at um, the, at the Garden really uh, really took took the house down and um, you know I've seen a lot of musical you know uh, performances but uh, Michael Jackson I think uh, you know it was just you know it was right at the top of the game. Did you have uh, some inside connection there to get some decent seats at the Garden, man? <laughs> well, I did I did promote you know a couple of concerts there myself. I, I had. Uh, Patty LaBelle, I had uh, the Isley Brothers and uh, Stephanie Mills and whatnot. So I, I had a couple of ends that, that I could get a couple of good seats. Yeah, I bet you did. And, you know, just since you mentioned them, man, the Isley Brothers have just, that, that music has just aged so well, man, hasn't it, Earl? Well, yeah, you know, the interesting thing about, you know, all that music back there is when you play it today, it sounds like today's music. And, um, you know, I, I'm, that's why I'm looking and listening to, you know, 
it's serious, like, because all that music sounds so great. I mean, and having been in the music business, I can appreciate, you know, the sound and quality of the music. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm with you. So tell me, Earl, which was more rewarding for you? Scoring 68 points your senior year in high school or beating Matt Jackson one-on-one -on -one in the playground to prove who the best Philly player was? Which was more rewarding? Well, I actually scored the 68 points in college. And uh, I think that was a little bit more rewarding because that day uh, somebody hit my car. And I told the police when they came, I said, somebody's going to pay for this. And then I went out, went to the, you know, got to the game, scored 68 points. So I think that was a little more meaningful than, than Mac Jackson because I beat him again later on. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, we'll talk about the book, man, that, uh, that you worked on with Quincy Troop, um, your story. But that build up to that Matt Jackson uh, afternoon in the park, man, that was that was quite entertaining. You drew a crowd, you two. Yeah, we had a lot of people in, in the you know schoolyard, but you know they're small schoolyards, but they were packed up with people that were hanging on the fence, some climbing the trees. I mean, it was a big to do. I mean, obviously something that I hadn't really thought was going to be that way. As it turned out, it was the, you know, like the, 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 the bout of the century, so to speak, was <laughs> in South Philadelphia. But, uh, you know, it, it also proved to me, you know, that I really gotten better. I started playing basketball at the age of 14. So it was, I was a little late and I was really bad. And my mom, you know, I used to cry to her about how these guys are talking about me, how they, you know, dealing with me. And she gave me this little blue notebook. And she said, Earl, write those names down with all those guys who are dogging you out. And as you get better than them, you scratch those names out. And so that was really a way for me to get confidence in my game to know that as I got better, I was able to scratch those names out. And uh, eventually, uh, Matt Jackson was one of them. Yeah, Matt paid the price. Yeah. And mom's had some strategy. I, I like that, man. So tell me, Earl, do you have a, a favorite meal? I have a favorite meal when I get sick. And that meal is baked beans, vegetarian beans, that is. <laughs> Chicken franks cut up in it uh, with sugar or honey. It has to be sweet. Rice and cornbread. And that's my remedy for whenever I get sick. That's my go-to meal. We used to have that on on like Saturday, Friday night, Saturdays at home. And um, it would be part of my meal when I go out to play on Saturday and Sunday. I'd have pancakes. I'd have the baked beans, hot dogs, and rice. I have uh, I have a breakfast meat. All that was syrup on the top of it. And I'd be gone a whole day. <laughs> <laughs> On one meal. On oh, one meal. One big meal. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. Uh, favorite New York City restaurant, Earl? Wow. Wow. Now that the cellar's not there, I mean, it's real tough <laughs> if we don't to, to try and find one, you know what I mean? But, uh, oh, gosh. Famous. Okay. I'll say Melba's, just to, just to give a name. Uh, you know, she does a good job with... Uh, her, her menu and things like that. And uh, yeah, Melvin's is pretty good. 
Yeah. I've been hearing good things about the Boulevard uptown, too. Have you eaten there? Yes, I have. And yeah. um, I mean, we've got a lot of good restaurants here. Um, you know, now we also have Restaurant Row here. So, you know, things have gotten better in that regard. In other regards, maybe not so much better, but in, in regards of eating and whatnot, uh, certainly we, we've got a lot of restaurants here. Yeah, definitely some, some more choices. All right. So last one of these, Earl, who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Um, probably Martin Luther King. I really enjoyed, you know, his speeches. Um, I was sorry I never got a chance to meet him. And I think that because of him, it, my life took a different turn. Uh, when I was supposed to go see, you know, the March on Washington, I didn't go. Uh, he was in Winston-Salem and coach wouldn't let us go. And then he was gone. And what I used to do after, um, uh, before games, I would read passages from a book, I think, called This Manner of Man by Lerone Bennett. And it had speeches in there. And I used to read the speeches before going out to play, you know, in the NBA. So it, it fired me up. And if I was to have someone over for dinner, guess who was coming to dinner? It would be Martin Luther King. Wow, man. Yeah, that, that's a great reference there. All right. So let's let's jump in. I mentioned at the top that that you were a restaurant owner for a minute. You had a place called the River Room. What what was that experience like, Earl? I know it was uptown. It was in Harlem. I think it was on 145th Street. Yeah, it was in Riverside Park. And um, the idea for that for that uh, was uh, pretty much the same as what was the tavern down in um, in Central Park was it was set up like on the river. Uh, we had nice grounds around it. Um, we were supposed to have had lights up and whatnot. It was a destination place. Um, I had a not a good feeling for that restaurant, uh, only because I think the my partner wasn't the kind of partner that I needed to have. But, you know, it did well for a little while, and I opted to get out of it because I just wanted to be involved with people that I, I liked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we're going to touch a little bit on your your family because you had a little background. We'll we'll call it in the hospitality industry growing up in South Philly, but uh, a little bit different. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So, Earl, I was watching um, a video of you speaking at your coach, your coach at uh, Winston-Salem Service in 2005. And I heard you reflecting on the impact that Coach Gaines had on you and the impact was greater than basketball and carried uh, into your life and your teammates' lives after basketball. And as I said, I know he passed in 2005. But can you talk about this? Can you talk about the lasting camaraderie between you and your teammates and maybe the role that a college coach plays in helping to develop young men in their programs? Well, I think, first of all, we have to think in terms of how did I get to Winston-Salem State? And I got there because someone that played at Winston-Salem saw me playing in Philadelphia and recommended me to to uh, Coach Gaines. And uh, Coach Gaines said, okay, send him down. And I said, okay, I'll go down there, but I got to take my man with me. So he said, okay, we came down. I thought we were on scholarship, but I didn't realize we weren't on scholarship. We, we had to make the team before we could get a scholarship. So we were down there early on before the uh, 
the school started and we played a lot of basketball. And then after a while, I guess he found out that we could play and we had to take our SATs then in order to get in school. And, but he was a guy that was bigger than life, six foot four, five, about 275, 300 pounds. And I guess we were kind of afraid of him at first. Uh, we didn't want to get on his bad side. But after being with someone for a while, you get to understand, you know, who they are and how they are. And he was just a, a real teddy bear of a guy. Uh, very strict, though. and didn't take a lot of junk. But he was a guy that we looked up to. He taught us a lot of things about life, not only just basketball, but life in general and things that we need uh, once we get out of school that we'll need for the rest of our lives. And it's so interesting because you talk about that. I just talked to one of my teammates this morning, and that's the kind of thing that we have, we've had over all these years, that he was the one who solidified. We talk to teammates every day. Somewhere along the line, we're all talking. And that camaraderie, um, you know, is, is so fixated in our being that not a day goes by as it's something that he didn't say, that he said back in those days that resonates. And, um, you know, we live this life for him as well. Wow, man, that talk about a lasting impact. And, you know, just to follow up on that a little bit, the story behind you attending Winston-Salem, as you alluded to, is, is an interesting one. And, and mostly having to do maybe with the fact that it wasn't necessarily your first choice. And you talked about how, you know, the circumstances led to you to you uh, being there. Um, but I've read that you consider yourself, quote, very lucky. And that's not to take anything away from the, the from the work that you put in, you know, on and off the court. You are dedicated and, and you do work hard, but the belief and you have the belief that if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. But you also, especially in the book, Earl, you recognize that being lucky in life has its rewards. In this case, attending this particular HBCU turned out to be a pretty good stroke of luck. For you, you end up winning a national championship and forming a life-changing relationship with Coach Gaines. Looking back, is this part of being the being very lucky that you were referring to? Do you do you see that as good luck? I, I see it as good luck. Um, I see it also as uh, uh, as the opportunity that that unfolded that I was able to make lifelong friends, and those friends are so important in my and you know in my being today. Like I said, we talked, we talked, I talked to at least six of them this week. So, you know, it's, it's all a part of who I am. My makeup and whatnot is derived from our being together and our experiences that we've had together. So I'm, you know, I'm in truly, in, you know, um, how, how could I say that? Indebted to them for helping me to be who I am today. Mm -hmm. And you know, Earl, I've been reading more and more as, you know, I get older, <laughs> you know, how to live a, a happy long life. And, you know, they say that that uh, friendships and staying connected with, with true friends, man, is like one of the keys to uh, to happiness as we as we start to move on in age. And it sounds like you, you're experiencing that with, uh, with your teammates. Yeah, I, I do. And as well as other, you know, there are, there are a few other guys that I, 
you know, keep in contact with, you know, from home, from Philadelphia. Uh, those guys went to other schools and whatnot. They, we played on a team together. But those lasting relationships are kind of what fuels you, you know, to kind of keep moving on and keep doing things. You know, as we speak, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put together a film uh, called The Magic of the Rams, which is our uh, mascot at Winston-Salem. And to tell that story about, you know, what we did and how we did it, and merely for the fact of I've had the opportunity for people to know who I am, what I've done, and so forth. But the guys who helped me to be that person, they, they, they didn't get a chance to be known in, as such. And I think that if we could get this film or this uh, little series off, I think they'll have a, a chance to be able to, to shine in the light as well. What a fantastic idea, man, and, and generous. So let me add a potential scene to that uh, for you. So on the train ride from Philly to Winston-Salem, it's 1963. I think your teammate, his name was Smitty, correct? Yes, yeah, Smitty. And uh, as you arrived, so you and Smitty are on the train and you talked about how cold it was and you guys had one trench coat between you to, to share and you're shivering. So you're riding from uh, South Philadelphia to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and you change trains in Washington, D.C. and have to uh, go and sit in the, quote, colored section. Uh, as you're riding south, you pass cotton fields with black folks picking cotton. Now, some of us who are too young to have experienced that firsthand, you know, might forget that that was a way of life not too long ago. So, Earl, how did those experiences inform you as a young person? And how do you feel about the need for the current young players to be aware of this not too distant past history? Well, you know, for me, it, it was a, a cultural shock as well, because I was from Philadelphia. I had never been south. So I didn't know what the cotton fields really looked like, you know, but uh, in passing and seeing that, you know, my all my references were for the, uh, the South was what we saw on TV with the dogs and the fire hoses and, 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 and things of that nature. Um, so but it came, you know, it, it came full circle, so to speak. When I was on that train going down, my thought pattern is, what am I, where am I going? What am I going to getting into, you know, going down south here? But I think the thing in a nutshell for me, uh, Coach Gaines made it a lot easier for us, you know, being in Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem was a little more progressive than a lot of the other southern cities and whatnot. And for younger guys um, today, you can't, you can't really explain that to guys. You know, you have to really have seen it and really understand and, and know, you know, the times that we were in. I mean, the thing in a nutshell is that you had to, you know, step in the right place. You knew where you could go. You know where you couldn't go. You know, mm -hmm. kids today, they don't have, you know, an inkling as to where they can't go. You know, they, they're, they're so-called free. And so it's a special kid who gets to understand what that was like and you could tell them everything whatever happened but until you experience those things that's you know it doesn't resonate right and you know you you talked about in the book coach Gaines um going to uh you mentioned that the, i think there was a, a highway that divided uh winston-salem state where you went to school and wake forest 
and you, the Wake Forest team and your team would occasionally scrimmage each other. And there was a time that you went over to their school and uh, that, that caused a little bit of drama there and some names calling call. But you talked about how, how Coach Gaines like did his work politically behind the scenes and, and paving the way. And, I, you know, it just it I just have a, a deep admiration for the, the kind of quiet work. It sounded like he also did. Yeah. You know, it was it was one thing for you to go and be with the NACP or something like that and doing things and whatnot. But Coach Gaines was down at the Rotary Club and and and, and, and other clubs like that and and facilitating things that you didn't think could be facilitated. And I think because of that, his reputation grew not only in the black section, but also in the white sections of, of Winston-Salem. And that, that road you were talking about is Highway 52, and which is a very famous highway. As you go down, it's, it's a separation between the blacks and the whites. And Coach Gaines, you know, with what, like I said, he was a very imposing individual, but he had a lot of respect. People gave him much respect. Uh, I can remember riding in the car. Uh, we were going somewhere. And the police pulled us over. And so <laughs> Coach Gaines got out the car and said, boy, why you pull us over? <laughs> so first of all, we said, damn, Coach Gaines said, boy, that to the policeman. <laughs> and so the guy, oh, Mr. Gaines, Mr. Gaines, I'm sorry. He's sorry. You, you want me to you escort you where you're going? And... <laughs> So we realized then, you know, how much respect he had. And it wasn't, you know, just because, it was because he earned it. You know, he was there, he was out there, and people understood who he was and what he was about. And that rubbed off on us, you know, to try and be that, you know, just like that. Yeah. I think he, you said that he used an expression uh, uh, or said, if you're, if you're not in the room, you can't make a difference, something along no those doubt, lines. No doubt. He also right. said, and I and I, I, I kind of quote. He said, "Opportunity at every door doth knock, but has never been known to pick a lock." Ooh. So Ooh. you know, he, he rolled that off, <laughs> in, 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 even in a huddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I, I love that. So before we move on, as someone who attended and graduated from college. How do you feel about young players not completing college? I mean, I mean, I know the money and the risk of injury, of course, have to be factored in. But the personal development, Earl, that you experience in college, man, it's just such a pivotal time. And to leap past all of that into a professional career is just it's a that's a big step. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, you know, for the most part, everybody should try and get as much education as they can. I mean, you know, granted, you know, making a lot of money, you know, sets you apart. But at the same time, if you're not able to do that, if if you get hurt, if you if you just don't make it a team or whatnot, you still have to live a uh, you know a full life. And the best way to do that is be educated. And that's why I'm so proud of the fact that I was able to graduate on time. And um, you know, it, it you know <laughs> it, it's funny because. I was just in, in Winston-Salem last week, too. Um, um, there was a lady there that helped spawn a lot of things for us when we were there, and a white lady. 
And so I went to a, a banquet that was honoring her. And there was a girl that was there that uh, was in my class, my student teaching class that I, when I did, I, I did student teaching. She was in my student teaching class. And I, I, I thought that was just unbelievable that, you know, here's somebody that was back in a class in the 60s that I was teaching. So, you know, it, it lets you know that, you know, the things that you do, if you do them well, people will remember. Yeah, no question, man. And, and you've done a few things worth uh, worth remembering and talking about, and namely this book. And I and I recommend it. I mean, it's been around for a while. Um, the book is called The Pearl, My Story. And you collaborated on this with the great Quincy Troop, who also uh, wrote Miles Davis's autobiography. Yeah. It's a fantastic read, Earl. I mean, it really is the forward by um, former senator and, and also ran for president, your former teammate, Bill Bradley. But it's just so full of life lessons, fantastic stories, history. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So you grew up in South Philadelphia. Next door to your house, your grandmother ran a speakeasy. Maybe that's where you got the, the restaurant bug from. <laughs> And your mom ran card games at your house on the weekends. These two women had quite an impact on your life. And your mom, who you said was, quote, the driving force behind all of this, everything in my life. You mentioned your grandmother's use of language as different, her use of words and pronunciation. But you say she was, quote, a fountain of wisdom for all of us. So can you take us back to South Philly? It sounds like a pretty colorful environment. <laughs> I don't know how colorful it was to tell you the truth. You know, I, I, I grew up on a street that was actually a dirt street in Philadelphia. We lived in front of a railroad. We go up the, up the hill and, you know, there's a trains that used to go by. We used to throw stones at the trains and jump, hop the trains and so forth and so on. At some point, the, the people in the caboose would shoot guns at us to get us off the trains and things of that nature. So I guess that's colorful in, in, in some respects. Um, being on that street was was interesting because not only the fact that, you know, we had our houses there. Next to my grandmother's house, she had a big garden. And these gardens and whatnot were places that other houses used to be. So it might have been maybe four or five houses that were torn down and they made them gardens or whatnot. That was her garden. Across the street, the same thing was happening. So on a block, I'm thinking of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We had about 12 houses on a whole, <laughs> a whole block. The rest of it was, was gardens or going up the hill in, at the, uh, which we call Cowboy Hill. <laughs> at the trains and whatnot. But uh, there was uh, a lot of characters around. You know, obviously, when you when you do speakeasy stuff like that, you got people that are buying, they're buying liquor, they're buying pig feet, you know, and, and my, my grandmother would be cooking stuff, and they come over to, the, to my house, and they play cards until all night, all times of the night. Very, a lot of characters. I mean, a yeah. lot of characters. Mr. Sunny Man, he's Mr. Sunny Man, you know, he was a guy that must have had the longest tongue in the world. We used to say he, he, he could brush his eyebrows and whatnot with his tongue. So, and he used to, all he did was do that. So, you know, they, like I said, there was a lot of characters that were in, in and out of there. And uh, a lot of kids on our street, our vacation Bible school was also on in a lot. 
on that street. Um, so, you know, it's the beginning of, of it was the beginning of my end, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> you know, I started playing basketball, shooting the basketball. I didn't play, but I started shooting the basketball in a makeshift basket at Vacation Bible School. So I used to always say that, you know, after I got all these nicknames, you know, in, in Black Jesus, Black Jesus came about because I started at Vacation Bible School. So, so you know, I'm giving myself names. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to stay on, on, on Grandma for a minute because you, you discuss in the book, as you just mentioned, that your grandma sold food. She sold pork sandwiches, pickled pig's feet from a big old jar full of them, chitlins, anything fried, just slap some bread on whatever it was to absorb some of the liquor. She'd be selling fried porgy sandwiches with all the bones in it. Now, Earl, I love porgies, but why did grandma leave the bones in the fish, man? Hey, <laughs> supply and demand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you had to get them out there, man. <laughs> I mean, hey. If you know the whole thing in a nutshell about having fish with a bone in it, if you get a bone stuck in your throat, you know the biggest thing you had to do now you had to go get some bread and you eat the bread, and that's supposed to you know wash it, you know put it down, you know take it down your esophagus and whatnot. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I I guess that was okay. That was before the days of Yelp, so nobody was going to Yelp your grandmother for the bones and the fish. So she was all right. <laughs> So your dad was out of your life for a significant portion of your childhood, but you got reunited when you were, I think, a freshman at Winston-Salem. Yeah. You went to his place and saw that he had been collecting clippings of your basketball highlights. Here's a quote from the book. You said, shaking his hand and feeling an electrical current race through my body. It was almost spiritual. What can you share about the reunion and the relationship with your dad? Well, I, I found out that he was a real nice person. I got to a point where I kind of rationalized um, the fact that, um, you know, he was, you know, he, that he was gone, but at the same time, uh, why he's gone? I mean, the thing in a nutshell is that it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. And I think a, a lot of times when, when kids and their parents, you know, separate, kids feel as though it's their fault. So I came to the conclusion that sometimes people just don't, get get along they don't get along so in order to have life run smoothly enough you know they have to get off and do their own thing so that, that's kind of how i rationalize it but he was a soft-spoken guy um you know he's a lot like me you know in a, in a lot of respects and um i could feel it i could see it and um i was just happy to get him back in my life again um you know, I tried to take him for, for some money and whatnot early on, but, you know, <laughs> but I got I got over that, you know, <laughs> and I just got I took it for who he was and what he was about. And, uh, and he, he, you know, until his dying day, he was he was for me and I appreciated it. That's beautiful, man. That, that's that's really beautiful. Earl, you talk and describe in detail a, uh, a violent incident you witnessed as a kid 
were maybe five or six years old. Two guys started fighting, one pulled a knife, and it got pretty brutal. This incident left a, uh, a lasting impression and made you feel a certain way about violence. This makes me think about the trauma that too many of our young people of color witness and how experiencing trauma can lead to a more lasting effect of being traumatized. What happened and what was the lasting imprint that this episode had on you emotionally? Well, it was an incident where there were two guys that were outside the, our house and um, they got into an argument. Obviously, they were you know, two guys who knew each other. And so one guy pulls out a knife and he starts stabbing this other guy. And, um, you know, it got to a point where he starts saying, well, I want to cut your heart out. I want to cut your heart out. Well, he kept stabbing him. And then he started trying to, you know, cut him, you know, cut him in, in the chest and whatnot. And, you know, obviously it didn't happen, but it left the guy on the, on the, on the stoop, you know, bleeding, you know, profusely. And um, then this guy just went, went up over what we call Cowboy Hill again and disappeared. And when I saw that, it was... I was kind of traumatized for a, a good while. Um, I didn't know. I didn't really know what to think. You know, my mom tried to console me and and um, rationalize this stuff with me. But uh, for a long, long time, I was afraid of the dark. Uh, there were other things that I, I was afraid of, um, and I kind of grew out of it. But I always remembered that because I, whatever it is. It's a possibility of, of this thing could happen to me. Yeah, that's that's a lot to uh, to internalize as a young person, and you don't have the words to you know at that age to really you know verbalize what you feel. I mean, traumatized was not something I would imagine would have been part of a five or six year old's vocabulary. Yet you know that you felt something that really moved you, and you said violence. You always kind of stayed away from anything that approached violence going forward. And, and, uh, from that incident, is that, is that right? I tried to, yeah, very much. So, you know, my cousins, uh, we had, we had gangs in, in New York, obviously, I mean, in Philadelphia and, um, my cousins like ran the gangs. So, you know, it was a lot of violence, you know, with them, you know, dealing with, you know, whatever they dealt with, uh, you know, fighting, you know, we, we had guys like, they, you know, they had nicknames like Gang or Butch and, and stuff like that, you know, so it was a lot of fighting being done. Um, but um, um, my, my cousins, Jimmy and Joe, they kind of shielded me from a lot of that stuff. And, um, you know, even though I got into some squirmishes and whatnot, the, um, once they knew it was Jimmy and Joe's cousin, kind of got squashed. Yeah, I tell you, I, I want to stay on Gang War Bush's good side. Okay. Man. That's, you know, I want him to like me. So, or before we move on to, I want to say because it's kind of a re related subject to me, and I want to discuss this incredible new school and the difference a school like this will make in the lives of young people, some of whom come from neighborhoods where trauma is a part of everyday life. The South Bronx, from my understanding, may finally be seeing some development, but. For as long as I knew it, having grown up in New York, the neighborhoods, while colorful and hardworking families, you know, tough neighborhoods to grow up in. 
And an Earl Monroe charter school has got to be a shot in the arm for this community. So Earl, if you don't mind, talk about the school, how it came to be and the location. And I understand there's going to be a future location yeah. uh, that's going to be different from where you currently are. Yeah, we, we're, we're currently uh, housed in a school in the Pelham Bay area. And um, fortunately, we, we were able to get a whole school. And uh, we put about a half a million dollars in just to put it, you know, get it up to speed for what we needed. But uh, our school is the first specialized uh, school in America for basketball, but not for the playing of the game of basketball. And we've got uh, boys, girls. Um, this first class is 109 students, 110 students. And each year subsequently for the next two or three years, We'll, we'll put another 110 students. So that this is a ninth grade class. And by the time they come out, we'll have 440 students total for our school. So it's, our permanent school will be located in the Mount Haven section. So we're, we're building a 60,000 square foot school in the Mount Haven section. And that's the third, about, yeah, the third uh, poorest section in New York. And what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to be like an anchor tenant so that uh, we can in, in, entice more commerce and, and other things to come in that area to try and normalize it to a certain degree. Um, you know, we, we've got, you know, every student will be surrounded with a, a team of a nurse and in-house uh, social and emotional counselors. Uh, two full-time teachers in each classroom, a mentor, uh, a college and career counselor, and um, and also we're looking for interventionists, uh, math and and um, literacy interventionists that we we feel as though uh, we we're going to need because when you're getting kids in the ninth grade, they come from all over and they have to you know, come through the lottery. So you're, you're getting all kinds of kids and 100% of them are kids of color. So some of them might not be up to speed on the literacy or the math. So we're looking for some, you know, people full time that could come in and, 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 um, and do this work for us. So we're trying to present to them many things that they need. We, we also have like enrichment programs. We got college, career, counseling, summer programs, internships. Our internships are related to uh, mentors that we give each student of people in, 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 in the uh, public sector so that they could be, you know, housed in school by those people. And hopefully as they grow older, maybe even be an employee of some of these uh, companies that we're dealing with. We're going to give them some financial support. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just an all-encompassing you know, uh, thing that we're trying to do so that we can make it easier for these kids to, you know, change their lives. You know, we like to think that, you know, we, David Stern was our first um, uh, board guy. And David Stern's, you know, word was a ball in a book can change the world. Okay. So that's what we've taken as our motto. 
and we're we're just happy that we're able to do it and 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 to be uh something different for these kids because it'll make a difference not only in their lives but also their families their com- and their communities man that is that is so beautiful Earl. when you think of you know the gems or the pearls <laughs> that are you know in those communities that just need a little love man and need somebody to show that they care and and then set up some you know it, it takes a little bit more than that for some, in some cases and you actually are giving them a building and the support that uh, that that uh, they that they don't get and that they deserve and need. What's what's been the reaction from the league, from the NBA? Do you are you getting support from Adam Silver, the players? I mean, I mean this has to be an idea that people are going to embrace. Oh yeah, well, we had our ribbon cutting about two weeks ago, and uh, of course, our, our school started in August thirtieth, but we had a ribbon cutting two weeks ago. Adam Silver was there. Um, uh, um, brass from the uh, from the Knicks, and you know we we uh, we've had just a, a proliferate of people come in and, and just want to be a part of this here. We got a great board, man. We got about seventy five people, you know, and and uh, in our immediate board, we've got about twenty people. So we got people that are able to do things and and, and get things done. And the interesting thing about this whole school is the fact that, you know, we still have to deal with uh, the New York State Charter and, 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 do, and do all the things, that curriculum that they have. But also, as an added thing, it's all about things that are around the basketball, the curriculums that they, that they are majoring subsequently, like law, coaching, uh, broadcast media, journalism, uh, philosophy, facilities management. I mean, some of these digital media. I mean, some of these things that people don't think about because when you see guys, when you see when you see guys playing or girls playing the game on a professional level, you see them. But then once the light goes down, there's two, three hundred people that made it all possible. These are the things that you can, you know, involve yourself in and still be involved with the game, but not having to be a sports person. So that's what we're trying to do. Give them the opportunity to do what it is that they feel good. We like to we like to think and say that we're marrying passion with opportunity. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. So. If you need anyone to come and give a little guest lecture on hosting a podcast and, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I, you, you got me, man. Or anything at, at all that I can do to uh, participate in that, man, that sounds fantastic. So count me in for sure. Well, thank you. Um, so turning to basketball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was once asked who the best player was he ever played against on the playground. And his, and his answer was Earl the Pearl Monroe. This was at the famed Harlem Rucker. And Kareem said, you showed up in the park with one low top white sneaker on and one high top black sneaker and that you also came with your own cheering section. So (laughs) showing up with mismatched sneakers, was this your way of saying, Earl, I don't even have to have sneakers that match and I'm still going to bust some, you know what, out here. What, What was that? Do you remember that? Well, you know, I was a little bit ahead of my time all the way around. So, <laughs> you know, there was a time when I, I had sprained my ankle 
And uh, so I started wearing, a, you know, a high top sh on on that foot. And, you know, guys, guys thought it was cool. So I thought it was cool, too. And so that's that that's, you know, that's how I got to New York, you know, that particular day. But but it's uh, it's been a journey, man. It's, it's been a journey, uh, you know, as as I look back over my life and, and you know, it doesn't seem like it's been this long. You know, obviously it has, but uh, when I look back, I mean, I'm, I'm some sometimes astonished at the things that have happened. You know, except for my body, I don't feel that much different. You know, than I was that I felt um, back in the day. Um, certainly, my mind is kind of the same way. Um, I think that a lot of times that we underestimate ourselves and the things that we do. And we take it for granted. I know I do. And a lot of people might say certain things that I did was so, you're so this, you're so that. But it's what you do every day. It's not, it's nothing, it's nothing that's special to you. You know, it's only special to people who see it. Well, those of us who have enjoyed your highlight reels will tell you that there have definitely been some special moments that, uh, that are worth remembering. But um, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned, um, you know, while, while when Kareem brought up this, uh, you know, answered the question about, um, you know, seeing you play in the playground, I found something where you had talked about seeing Pee Wee Kirkland play. And I know you've played against some some playground legends. Anybody come to mind that uh, that stood out for you that maybe didn't necessarily make it in the league, but you thought was just like an incredible playground guy? Well, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, so you know, most of the, most of my guys are going to be from Philadelphia. But um, you know, I, I can't think of anybody to tell you the truth at this point. Um, Do you remember Pee Wee's game at all? Yeah, I, yes, I've seen Pee Wee's game. <laughs> the one on the court. <laughs> yeah, I've seen, I've seen his game. I mean, Pee Wee was you know a really good player. You know, it's 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 such a difference between playing in the playgrounds and, and translating that to a more structured, you know, scenario. And my yeah. game itself was was derived in the playground, you know, and fortunately I was able to move it from there because because all of a sudden they, when, they, when I first got out there, that's what they said, it's a playground, it's a playground. But then when they start seeing people get in the seats, to want to see this, then I became a genius. <laughs> and if you look at the game today as it's being played, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that much different. I mean, they're jumping higher and all that, but it's not that much different from the, when I came into the league. Right. You went from a hot dog to people being in the seats buying hot dogs no to see you play. <laughs> So, yeah, and I, I want to stay on that for a minute, Earl, because, you know, you, you won the NCAA, NCAA championship. You won an NBA championship with the Knicks in 73. And you had to make a little bit of an adjustment. You know, the, the, the Bullets and the Knicks had been kind of rivals, and you and, and Walt and Clyde had gone against each other, and it was a tough matchup. And then you got traded to New York and subsequently won the championship. Dave DeBusher, your teammate, power forward on that team, um, had this to say when um, when you uh, after that year, he said, quote, he came into a difficult, difficult position. He was a man with immense pride and intelligence who had to swallow his pride to adjust. One of them, meaning Frazier or Monroe, 
had to make the entire adjustment and Earl did it completely. So what was that adjustment like for you? And what it takes me back to, Earl, I remember you in the book talking about how when you played at a particular high school that was mostly white, there was there was a, a style of game that the coach wanted to be played there and you could play that way. But then as you just alluded to, you had this playground style that we all grew up with playing and doing, dribbling between our legs and behind our back. That was just a necessary part of our game, but maybe didn't have a way. But you found you always found a way to acclimate your game to the situation that that was required. Is that what happened when you when you joined the Knicks or something else? Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean just, you know, again, it goes back to being from Philadelphia, being able to play in different types of situations. It also is, is uh, it comes from Winston-Salem, you know, because I was able to play in a different type of situation there. And even though I was a so-called man, you know, doing that, um, it was important for me to make sure that my teammates felt as though they was just as important. So... When this thing happened, I actually quit playing for the Bullets and, and forced them to trade me. And um, I had given them three three teams that I wanted to go to, which were Chicago, Philadelphia, and L.A. But uh, when they told me it was <laughs> that they had uh, New York, I told them no initially. And then I said, "Well, let me let me go back home and and let me think about it." So. Went back home and talked to my mom, talked to some other people, and came away with the, you know, my man Sonny Hill, uh, he says, Earl, you know, if you go to New York, you're going to have to give up all the stuff that you have been doing. You know, this is, you know, are you ready to do that? And I told him, I said, man, listen, I'm from Philly. <laughs> I always say that. I'm from Philly. You know, I could play anyway. And next morning, drove my car off to New York and um, signed a contract. Yeah. So, Earl, let me know if I was, if this was just my perception or or if you would agree. Because I said something in the opening that, you know, playing basketball, man, I, I always felt like I could tell a guy's personality from how they were on the court, right? And, you know, you just talked about the film that you're interested in making and giving your teammates who haven't necessarily had the notoriety that you've had a chance to shine. That's kind of inherent in your nature. So it, it kind of makes my point a bit about what I was saying in terms of the personality on the court is a personality. But do you, have you found that to be true, that that people's on court personality kind of matches up with who they are off the court? Oh, absolutely. You know, the guy that tell you, hey, you stepped out of bounds, but you did Sneaky guy, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there's certain things that happen during the course of a game, you know, that you can see that, yeah, that's really inherent in that guy's personality, you know, very much so, very much yeah. so. Um, yeah. For me, it, it's the fact of more or less a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing, because I was not the same person as I was on the court as I was off the court. And that came from pretty much the fact, especially coming to New York, is the fact that I had to tone everything down. I couldn't be, you know, Clyde was doing whatever. He's, I couldn't come to New York and do the same thing. So I had to tone everything down in order to kind of make my own way and be my own person that was separate from everybody else. So that, um, that, 
that's kind of how I took that, that, you know, that I call it the emotion <laughs> because I've always been a scorer, you know, and I came into New York, my, you know, after averaging, what, 23, 24 points a game, I averaged, what, 11 or 12 points, you know, that first year in, in, in uh, New York, you know, then 15. I mean, you know, you guys in Philly, when I went home in the summertime and say, Vera, Go back to New York, man. We can't. <laughs> you ain't scoring no points, man. Go back, go back to New York, man. That's cold, man. <laughs> that reminds me of what my father used to say that because uh, New York always had, you know, felt like it had its own rep. And he would say uh, the the brothers in New York that that don't know how to hustle, we send them to Chicago to teach. <laughs> but man, you know, it, it says something to me though. I mean, your, your ego, you took your ego out of it and you, you know, it was important to you to be a part. That team was a balanced team. You know, everybody damn near averaged 16 points a game. So, you know, you still, I mean, cause another player might've said, man, I can't do this. I'm not getting, you know, I'm not scoring them, you know, coming with your rep. But I think that does say something about your character that you were able to do that and not have an issue with it. Well, I had issues with it, <laughs> but I masked a lot of those issues and whatnot. I, I know, okay. you know, and we're talking, we're talking now about the 75th anniversary, you know, of, of the NBA today. And uh, they're announcing these different names and whatnot and so forth. And someone called me this morning to, you know, tell me about who's on it, you know, what team, whatnot. And, you know, for me, it, it was it was great to be in the fifty, you know, um, but for me, my my career as I as I see it, you know, didn't flourish in New York. I mean, I I, I became a part of a of a scenario, but it wasn't a flourishing thing like it was in Baltimore, and so I'm content at being whoever I am. You know, I guess that I've mellowed out so much, you know, being in New York and starting with the fact that to take a subservient, so to speak, position on a, on a team when I know that I could lead it. And um, I guess that was the hardest thing, um, coming into a situation and doing the games. As a player, you know when you can take over a game, you know who needs the ball, so as as the leader of a team, those were the things that I had to kind of back up from, you know, because it was already being done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to really figure it all out how to fit into those things so that I could still be effective, you know, and still be Earl Monroe. I remember right. uh, Red Holzman coming to me after uh, and – after, I guess, our championship and the next year when guys started to uh, retire and he said, Earl, you know, you lost your ego. He said, you got to, you know, you had an ego. You know, you got to play with the ego. You know, you can't, you can't play without your ego. And, and when he said that to me, I, I understood exactly what he meant. And um, so I started getting back into playing Earl Monroe ball. And uh, for the next couple of years, I made a couple all-star games, so forth, but average was up in the 20s, whatnot. So, but it's really hard for you as a player 
to be high flying and then low flying and then trying to get back up there. You know, because, you know, not only not only the fact that that's happening, but you're also getting older. And so consequently, you know, I was able to do a lot of stuff. But at the same time, I, I would if I would have stayed in Baltimore, I would have had a much different career than I, I would have had overall. Right. Well, then I'm going to drop a couple of pearls of wisdom on you that are your pearls of wisdom. And I think it feeds nicely into what you were just talking about. So talk about your ability to compartmentalize, because I know that's a word that uh, that pops up a lot. Well, you know, just the fact that, uh, you know, coming to New York, I was I had to understand that, you know, it was actually somebody else's team. And so, you know, again, how am I going to fit in this here in a way that's going to be meaningful? Uh, first of all, let the guys understand and know that, you know, I was for them. You know, when I got to New York, I told Red Holster, I don't want to start. You know, you got Dick Barnett here. Uh, let, let Dick start. I'll, I'll, I'll earn my way in. And so, you know, by the end of the season, that's where I was, I was starting. But at the same time, I think it, it, it gave people uh, um, an understanding of the kind of person that I was and that I wasn't trying to rock the boat, you know, and I compartmentalized the, those things that I did so that, you know, so that I was still me, but they could, they could see that I was trying to be for them. Yeah. Yeah, man, I, you set the tone, I think, you know, with, with that uh, with that offer of not starting. Um, trial and error. Mm, trial and error, that's, that's my game. <laughs> um, growing up, um, having not played for a lot, you know, or, you know early on in, in, in my life, uh, I get, went out to the playgrounds and, you know, tried different things, you know. The things that worked, I kept. The things that didn't work, you know, I got rid of. It's like I was um, playing, um, a guy was showing me how to do a spin move. And so he was doing it, but he was doing it with two hands. He was spinning, he was coming around, spinning with his right hand, pushing the ball, and then taking his left hand and turning. And I told him, you know, I said, okay, that's cool. So I tried to do it. And what I did was I tripped and I kept the ball in one hand. And it was so much quicker, you know? And so that's how my spin move came about, you know, a, a trip. You know, I tripped on my foot, spun very quick, and, and that was it. So I just kept, you know, it's another trial and error, <laughs> signature move. Signature move. But let's talk about another signature move that I I, I want to, you know, kind of get you to clarify for me. So I know you were uh, a fan of the Flamingos and their song, I Only Have Eyes for You. And I read in your book that you would use a line. You started to like women at, at a certain age. And there was a line in the song that you would that you would use as part of your rap. You would say, and this is a line from the song, our love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone 
but you. Would you actually bust that out, man? That was you would use that. Would you sing it? Would you rap it? Was it during a slow record? How, how'd that happen? Slow records, baby. Slow records, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you, and you know the background would say what? Do what you want. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I love it. Those slow records wouldn't last long enough sometimes. <laughs> well, we had. We had, we always had a, um, we had parties at my house a lot. And we had whitewash on our walls. So, you know, when the, when the, when the um, slow records came on, the lights went out, and, you know. <laughs> and, and after the records went out, you see nothing but whitewash on people's backs. <laughs> Oh, that's great, man. That is great. So winding up here, um, your mom, who meant the world to you and did not unfortunately live long enough to see you win the NBA championship, but yet was so instrumental, as you mentioned, she gave you this book. She had the foresight to tell you to cross off these names as you got better. You know, she, she just meant the world to you. And you did buy her a, a mink coat on her last Christmas. So just touch on that, Earl, for a moment. Well, you know, to me, it, it wasn't a big thing at the time. You know, got her, you know, a mean coat. I mean, you know, you know, I didn't know if she ever had one or whatnot, but I wanted her to have it. That was like December two, of 72. And um, she had a, a hemorrhage, brain hemorrhage, uh, actually pushing my, my sister's car. And she never really came out of that. And it's so interesting because I tell people about this all the time. I had to come from New York to visit her. And obviously, I'm, I'm always late. You know, I, I used to be always late. So I get there about 9 o'clock at night. Visiting hours are over. And I go into the room, and there she is. She's waiting for me. She, she's really glowing. You know, and and um, she looks really good. I mean, so after I visited, you know, she she walks me to the door and she tells me, she said, Earl, if anything happens to me, don't worry about it because I'll be okay. And I called her Ma, M-A. I said, oh, Ma, be cool. You know, you know, I'll check you out. And um, I got in the car. Uh, we had a game the next night, so I got in the car, went back to you know, New York. And um, when I got back, uh, Smitty, my, my friend Smitty, called me to tell me my mother had passed. And I just felt as though, you know, because she looked so good, that she was kind of waiting for me to say goodbye. And um, I'm, I'm just so happy that, that I was able to get there and see her and hug her before she left. So I stayed out of the game. I mean, I, 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 I didn't go back, you know, to play for about two weeks. And I decided to dedicate the rest of the season to her. And fortunately, we went on and we won the championship that year. And so, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was because of her. 
Wow. That's a beautiful story, man. And yeah, a mother and the son connection is a special one. Um, you know, I lost my mom a few years ago and uh, that memory, you know, just never leaves you, man. That, uh, that's a special relationship right there. So beautiful tribute to her. So winding up, uh, you live in Harlem. I used to see you often in New York City, uh, uptown playing tennis at the Armory. And uh, I'd play there once in a while with my dad. And uh, you would often stop by the cellar, our restaurant on 95th Street. Recently, a friend, an old friend from the neighborhood, a guy named Thomas Poole, who lived across the street from the cellar, posted a memory on my Facebook page. And uh, he talked about as a young kid and a huge Knicks fan, as we all were back then, seeing your car double parked outside of the cellar and you sitting in it. And he just sat across the street and just stared at you, man, and was just in awe that you were in his neighborhood. And it just stayed with him. He shared that with me on Facebook um, a few weeks ago. So before I, I let you go, Earl, I mean, do you do you feel the love that we all feel for you, man? I mean, it's it's you're you're amazing to to us as a player, as a man, as a businessman. And uh, I just hope you feel that love, man. Full force. Well, I appreciate it, man. I, I you know, I try to live my life uh, in a way where it's, um, it's representative. I try to do the right things. Hey, I can't do the right things always, but I, I always said that if, if you're going to do something with somebody, make sure they got as much to lose as you do. So, so I try to keep that, you know, in, in perspective. Um, uh, I, I'm really grateful for, you know, you know, people, because people keep me going. Uh, and I've had over 40 surgeries. And, you know, I, you know, I, I hurt, man, you know, different things, knee, lips, back, neck, you know, feet. I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, but at the same time, you know, I'm still want to be able to give back and be responsible for some things that are happening out here in, in this world. Um, yeah, I, I, I love it, man. You know, people, you know, and, and that's another thing, I guess, that people take for granted as a person. I might take for granted uh, because, you know, like I said, when you're doing things, you, you're just doing it. You're not doing it for anything other than the fact that you're doing it. You don't want to, you don't really want the accolades. Sometimes you do, but, but you know, you're not doing it for accolades or whatever the case may be. You're doing it because it's in your heart to do. And uh, if in fact that, 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 that resonates to people and, and gets across, then that's what it's all about. Earl. The Pearl Monroe. Man, thank you so much for joining me today, Earl. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great to see you. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, I don't get a chance to walk down memory lane like this, man. You did a lot of, lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to earn my extra credit, Earl. All right. Well, great, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, brother. So welcoming my dear friend with our portion of the program that we call How We Move Ambassador Shabazz. So what about that, Earl the Pearl Monroe? Oh, that was really just magnificent to sit through, to recount, also to hear it through your spirit as a basketball player and it being one of your friends and the recollections, you know, one of the most preeminent sportsmen of my contemporary youth, you know, decades ago. And, um, and like your earlier guest, Walt Frazier, uh, 
Earl, the Pearl Monroe is a must know. And through your uh, corner table talk, we get a chance to really hear people beyond the headlines, beyond beyond the clip, you know, and um, just listening to him was just represent, he represents like a tapestry of characteristics that, um, and experiences that black men during an era of balancing the great successes along with the social change and listening to him reflect that, you know, messages and lessons from his parents and it's just really great. Yeah. And, you know, when you, I mean, it just, it, when I was reading it, I was like, man, this, this was within our lifetime that he was a student on a bus being made to sit in the colored section and looking at cotton fields with black folks in them. And, you know, this was his life. He didn't read that in a history book. And when you juxtapose that against how far the league has come, what the players are earning, flying around in jets. I mean, it's it's a completely different world, but history still has its place. Yeah, it does. I was excited to learn or learn about the school that he so proudly represents that's named after him in his honor. I could feel the uh, principal in him, you know, headmaster, the provost, how rewarding that is to know that people aren't just asking for an autograph, but actually are being inspired by his life to touch so many others in a full community. You know, it's not just the students and their academic interventions that he mentioned, but also growing an ecosystem in that full surrounding community, parents and neighbors. Really beautiful, really wonderful. Yeah, that ecosystem, that that's the thing, right? I mean, it's not just the school, it's not just the classes, but it's the 360 degrees of support that these kids are going to have an opportunity to, to have available to them that I think is just so, so special and necessary. Well, it's like him recounting his mom and his dad. And while they may not have been in the same house, they both played a very pivotal role and so we always need to be in touch with the circumference of ourselves. And I mean, that's essential. And he's passing that on as well. Really special. Speaking of Philly. Well, have you ever been to Philly? I have, but it's, it's been a minute. What do, you, what do you got for me in Philly? Well, let's go back to uh, Sir Monroe's uh, home state, uh, where there's no shortage at all um, of history makers, uh, some born there, some passing through you know, from pioneers of justice or artisans, a mosaic of musicians and uh, impresarios alike. One of my great friends there is uh, Kenny Gamble, whom he actually, Mr. Monroe, sounds like a little bit when he starts to get into a story. It has that kind of, you know, uh, our rhythm and blues gravel to it, you know, um, and uh, of course, athletes like himself. So one of the things that people know about Philly is you can get go down there to party, gear up, have, you know, good food. But it also has a place or two where you can shut down or reboot. And right in the heart of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, as has been termed, is one of the Aquaba luxury bed and breakfast inns. Uh, and it's owned by a sister named Monique Greenwood and her husband, Glenn Polk. Were you familiar with their place in Brooklyn? No, I wasn't. And could you spell Aquaba? So that, uh... Aquaba, A-K-W-A-A-B-A. And it, it really started, her brand started back in 1995 with a Quaba Mansion. It was an upscale bed and breakfast in what was then an evolving Brooklyn, New York. You know, it wasn't the Brooklyn we now showcase today. And then outside of Philadelphia, in the Poconos, uh, Lady Greenwood fell in love with yet another 
old structure and began to um, restore it and then fulfilled the Aquaba growing brand of specialty bed and breakfasts, of which there are five, with this new location called the Mansion at Noble Lane. It's stunning. Hmm. And if you go on the website, uh, aquaba.com, it'll show you the five locations. Regional, um, most of them are in urban locations except this particular one in the Poconos. And it has really special spa getaway packages like uh, Run Away From Home, (laughs) you know, Love Unlimited, Extend the Joy. And as I was exploring it, if you stay four nights, you get 50% off on the last day. So you can get a little uh, respite in with your buddies or a loved one. Well, that is a fantastic tip from you. And uh, Aquaba, I'm going to be looking into that and um, a little runaway getaway to the city of brotherly love. What do you call a sisterly affection? Yeah, <laughs> that's how. That's that. actually how she refers to it, okay. and I and I and I like it. Yeah, yeah, it works. It works. <laughs> Ambassador Shabazz, that's how we move. That's how we gonna move. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you. You too, my dear. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.